0: This Parsha Podcast is dedicated in honor of a new baby. The adorable Emma Marie Mackler was born this Monday evening. Eight pounds, seven ounces. What a wonderful and joyous blessing. May she grow up to be a beacon of light to her family, community, and to the entire nation. It's great to be back in the Parsha Podcast studios at the Torch Center. It's been a while. It's been longer than you think as you know last week parshas vayikra we had a guest episode with rabbi byron very well received maybe we'll have him back but i didn't tell you this but the, the previous week i was in israel and i had pre-recorded vayakapakude labor of love the week prior meaning that since the day after purim I haven't been in the Torch Center studios, in well, in the PowerShop podcast studios at the Torch Center. I did some other shows that you may have listened to, and therefore I'm a little bit rusty. You'll forgive me. I hope I remember exactly what to do here. I do remember my email address, RabbiWalby at gmail.com. I hope to hear from you. Let's begin. Now, Parsha Tsav is a little bit of a difficult Parsha because it talks about sacrifices. And yes, the Parsha starts off with uh, cleaning out of the ashes, and we spoke about that a couple of years back. And then it talks about the fire, the fire that always is to be present on top the altar. We spoke about that already. And at the end of the Parsha, it talks about the thanksgiving offering, and we spoke about that three years ago. So it's really hard, but of course, we look forward to those things. It's a challenge. What are the lessons in the Parsha that can be transformational and life-changing for us? So I want to focus today on one of the most interesting offerings featured in the Torah, in my opinion, one that I really didn't know much about before I researched it today for today's podcast, and that is the Minchas the Inauguration Offering, also known as the Chavitin Offering, also known as the Minchas Korna Mashiach. And this is featured in chapter 6, verse 12 through 16. And if you read these verses, it sounds like classic Leviticus. When you read it, your eyes kind of glaze over, what does this mean? But I think when we study, we find something very fascinating. So i quickly read the verses, and then we'll dig into it. Hashem spoke to Moses saying, This is the offering of Aaron and his sons, which each shall offer to Hashem on the day that he has inaugurated a tenth ephah of fine flour as a continual meal offering, half of it in the morning, half of it in the afternoon. It should be made in a pan with oil, scalded shall you bring it a repeatedly baked Meal offering broken into pieces, you shall offer it as a satisfying aroma to Hashem. The Kohen from among his sons who is anointed in his place shall perform it. It is an eternal decree for Hashem, it should be caused to go up and smoke in its entirety. Every meal offering of a Kohen is to be entirely caused up to go and smoke, it shall not be eaten. You read that, it's not so clear what you even read. There's some sort of offering, a special offering, half in the morning, half at night. It's scalded. It's also fried in a pan. What exactly is going on? So when when we study it and read the literature, we find out the following. This is one of the most elaborate of offerings that was offered in the temple. The Kohen would be the only person who is able to offer this, both an ordinary Kohen and a Kohen Gadol. And they bring a certain amount of flour, and they sanctify it, and they divide it in half, and they bring a certain amount of oil, and they mix and knead the oil and the flour together. And then they blanch it. They scald it with hot water, and then they divide it up into six loaves for each half of an isaron, And then you bake it a little bit, and then you fry it. So if you're following, we have scalded baked and fried, and we have two halves of an esaron, each one of them kneaded into six loaves. So we have 12 in total. And then you divide each one of those 12 loaves in half because the kohen God to the high priest has to bring half in the morning and half in the afternoon. So he brings 12 half loaves in the morning and 12 in the afternoon. But even those 12 half loaves have to be folded over and broken up into pieces. And then you offer that together with some incense, some frankincense upon the altar. This is done by the high priest every day. And this identical offering is offered by every ordinary Kohen on the day that they are inaugurated to work in the temple The process is identical with one exception, the division of the loaves into two, because unlike the Kohen Gadol, unlike the high priest who divides it in half and does half in the morning and half in the afternoon, the ordinary priest does the whole thing in the morning, all 12 loaves. He doesn't divide it into two, into 24. Okay, so this is a little complicated. It's an offering. It's a meal offering, and we've talked about meal offerings in the past, of course, that was featured in last week's Parsha as well. But this is a special offering for Aaron and his sons. If you're, like me, an ordinary standard issue Israelite, you can never bring this offering. It's done only by the high priest every day, half of the morning, half of the afternoon. And ordinary priests, on the first day that they are inaugurated, on the day that they commence their career as a priest who does worship, who does service in the temple... They bring this as well. Now Rashi spells this out. He notes that there are some contradictions in the verse. It says Aaron, which would imply it's only the high priest, but then it says Aaron and his son, so it's also the ordinary priests. And then it says on the day of their inauguration, and then it says every day, and then he explains, like we said, it's offered on two distinct occasions. Every Kohen, every descendant of Aaron that begins their career to do worship in the temple on day one, when they're a rookie with bright eyes and big ambitions and they're finally doing work in the temple, they bring this on day one. And the Kohen Gadol, the high priest, every single day, half in the morning, half in the afternoon. In addition, an ordinary Kohen who is promoted to becoming a Kohen Gadol, a high priest, on a day that he is promoted, he does this twice once for his promotion to be the high priest, and once because of the daily responsibility of the high priest. And again, this is known as the Minchas Chinuch, the inauguration meal offering, or the Minchas Chavitim, or the Minchas Kohen HaMashiach. Now, it is interesting, the commentaries tell us here, that it's actually technically possible for a Kohen to bring this very unique priestly offering Three times in one day. Suppose you have a young priest who never did any work in the temple or the tabernacle for that matter. And on the day that they are elevated to priesthood to do actual work in the tabernacle or the temple, they're actually nominated to be the high priest. And thus they would bring one inauguration meal offering because now they're a cohen doing work in the temple, and a second for their other promotion to be the high priest, and a third due to the fact that now they're a high priest, and a high priest has been doing this every single day. So on the day that Aaron ascended to greatness, he became a high priest. It was also the first day he did any work as a priest, and therefore on that day he brought, in fact, three versions of this particular meal offering. Now, what's interesting about this is that this is the very first offering that any Kohen, that any priest offers as he assumes his new position. In fact, the Talmud tells us that if a Kohen does not bring this inauguration offering, all subsequent offerings that they do are invalid. This is like what renders a Kohen into being someone who is worthy of doing service in the temple. If you do this, now you are qualified. Now you are legitimately able to do work in the temple. If you don't do it, you don't have this rite of passage, so to speak. You don't have this ability to do any work in the temple. So we have this very unusual sacrifice offering, meal offering, it has elaborate treatment. It's done in a very specific way by very specific people, either by a coin who received a promotion on day one of your new role, either as an ordinary coin or as a high priest, a Kohen Gadot. And it's the daily offering of the high priest, half in the morning, half in the afternoon. And of course, this raises a question, a few questions. A, why is this the offering that qualifies a Kohen for doing service in the temple? Like, What's so special about this? What's the lesson behind it? What's the idea? What's the principle? What's the concept of this particular meal offering? Now, it's also interesting that you have the identical offering being brought by the high priest every single day. And for most kohanim, for most priests, it's a a once-in-a-lifetime offering. On day one of your service, you do it once and you never do it again, unless, of course, you're promoted to be the high priest. Then you would do it twice on the day that you are promoted, once because it's a day of promotion, and twice because that's what the Kohen Gadol does every day going forward. But it raises, I think, questions from either side. This it's something special. This is different. This is, the verse starts, this is the offering of Aaron and his sons. There's something special about this. And we can define it as the inauguration offering. Every coin of the thousands of Kohanim, every single one of them, they do it once. But the Kohen Gadol, he does it every single day. Why does the Kohen Gadol, why does the high priest why does he offer the ordinary Kohen's inauguration offering every day? And on the flip side, if this is the offering of the high priest, what business does an ordinary Kohen, what business do they have to offer the Kohen Gadol, the high priest's offering? You know, just because it's your first day in the job, you shouldn't sit in the C suite in the corner office on the plush chair with the mahogany table. It's your first day in the job. What business do you have to pretend that you're the high priest? And it's also interesting that we have this, the same offering, and there's three different ways that it can be brought under three circumstances it could be brought either promotions to an ordinary coin doing service or to a high priest, or the daily offering of the high priest. But there's a slight difference between how the high priest does it every day and how the ordinary priest does it on the day of their promotion. The high priest, you have the the, the six loaves from each half of the sun and then it's divided in half. So you have 12, and then it's each one of them is divided to two, so it's 24. And half of it's done in the morning, half in the afternoon. But only the high priest does it in stages. Why is there this difference, of, of all differences, you know, they're, they're, they're so similar, the amount of flour and the amount of oil and the unique system of, of scalding it and then baking it and then frying it and then burning it. But the only difference is that the high priest does it in stages, half in the morning, half in the afternoon. But the ordinary priest does it all in the morning. If it's identical, well, it should be completely identical. So some questions here we have on this offering. And before we give an answer, we're going to offer an answer. I want to read to you an incredible Midrash. You never think about it. Sometimes it's hard to see the details of Leviticus because there's a lot of jargon and it's very unfamiliar territory for us. We've never witnessed this in our lives. The whole notion of a sacrifice, of course, is one that we have a hard time really understanding what exactly it is and why there's such an emphasis on sacrifices in the Torah. But the way it starts is this is the offering of Aaron and his sons. Aaron, of course, this is the priestly class. This is Aaron, the spiritual leader of the people. And his descendants are going to be the Kohanim going forward. And the picture, the image of the great spiritual leader of the people, that's the high priest. And this, the verse tells us, this is the offering of Aaron and his sons. And the Midrash tells us that there's some very direct language. Zeh korban aharon uvanav. This, this is it. You want to know what Aaron and his sons, what they're all about? This is the sacrifice that embodies and personifies who they are, what they stand for, and what stature and standing they have amongst our people. And the Midrash furnishes an incredible, amazing, and instructive story to explain what, what does it mean. This is the sacrifice, the offering of Aaron. And it tells the remarkable story, featured many places in our literature. It tells that there was a Roman noblewoman who came to the great rabbi, Rabbi Yossi Bar Chalafta, and she asked him a very basic question, but it was a trap. It was a trap. How many days did it take God to create the world? So, of course, it's an easy answer. It's a layup. Six days. The verse tells us, for in six days, God created the heavens and the earth. But that was just a setup. And she says, well, okay, it's been a while. What is God up to Since. What's he doing ever since? And that's a very tough question. And that's what the Roman noblewoman posed to the great sage. And he responded, well, God is making matches. This woman to this man, this daughter to this person, this money to that person, God is arranging the world, coordinating, orchestrating the matters and the affairs of humanity. That's what God is doing since those first six days of Genesis. And the woman, the noble woman is not impressed. Uh, Why do you need God for that? I could do that myself. I have lots of male servants and lots of female servants I, too, can play matchmaker. Matchmaker. Find me a match. I don't know the song exactly. I never watched the movie. Find me a match. Find me a catch. Uh, probably should have done my research beforehand. I know there is a song like that. I can play matchmaker, says the Roman noblewoman. No big deal. Who needs God for that? And the rabbit responds, well, you think it's easy. God says it's hard. It's as hard as splitting in the sea. Of course, all that's easy for God. But it circumvents the rules of nature, just as the splitting of the sea did. She was not impressed. And she lined up a thousand male servants and a thousand female servants. And she made long rows of them. And she just played matchmaker. You are now Together, you are a match. You and you and you and you. She walked down the lines and she just paired up all of her 1,000 male servants with her 1,000 female servants. I could play God. I could be a matchmaker too. The next morning, she discovered what happened. The results, shall we say, were not pretty. And the Midrash tells us that one of them came and his head was bashed in. They got into an argument and she took some lamp or something like that and, and hit his head and he's bleeding and he's disoriented. And the next one is, comes and his eyes been gouged out. And the third one, his arms are broken. And the fourth one, his leg is broken. And they're all saying, I don't want her. I don't want him. I don't want her. It was a total disaster. So what'd she do? She went back to the rabbi, and she says, okay, you've convinced me. If it's, in fact, hard, as hard as the splitting of the sea, this is the handiwork of God. Now, parenthetically, I'll tell you, a couple years ago, 10 years ago, I had the great privilege of spending a Shabbos in Long Island, and this was the week, the Shabbos, before my sister got married. And they have a traditional festive get-together. The uh, groom's family, and they're kind of preparing them. It's kind of like the kosher version of a bachelor party, I guess. It's called an Afrof. I don't know what that means. But anyhow, it's a lovely Shabbos get-together. And uh, the bride and the groom are, are separated. So... The bride is still in her, in her home and the groom is, is in his, with his family. But they invited us as well, even though it was, you know, I came from the bride side. They invited us as well to join the Shabbos. And uh, they asked me to speak. And I quoted this midrash. And I said that many brides and many grooms after they get married, they discover characteristics and traits Impulses, inclinations, proclivities of their spouse that they were unaware of. And they're like, "Oh, I must have married the wrong one. Ah, oh, what a disaster!" And that's a very common experience for young couples. But here the major shows us what it looks like when someone ends up with the wrong spouse. The next morning, one guy has his head bashed in and one guy's missing an arm and the other one's missing a leg and there's an eye that's been gouged out and they're all so convinced that this is a mistake. I am not interested in him. I am not interested in her. So I said to the audience, I said, look at our handsome groom. Look at him. I said, stand up, turn around. Is he healthy? Is he put together? Are all the organs, all the limbs, are they in place? Everything is a nice, fine, working order. If, God forbid, this is the wrong spouse for them, we'll know very, very, very soon. So I said, in a week, we're going to get together again because the Shabbos after the wedding is the Shabbos of the Shabbos. And this time we get together in the the bride's family. But now, of course, the husband and wife are together. I said, we're going to examine him. We're going to look at him. We're going to see if he's limping. Is he favoring one of his sides or not? And if he's fully healthy and everything's in fine working order, then we know he married the right one. That's what our sages are telling us. And if uh, anyone thinks over the course of the uh, ensuing months, maybe they made a mistake, no, they didn't make a mistake. And sometimes you have to work on your relationship, work on your marriage, and things will work out in the end. Anyhow, that's a sidebar of what I mentioned from this midrash. Now, what does this have to do with Aaron and Aaron's sons and the inauguration meal offering and the daily offering half of the morning, half in the afternoon of the high priest continues the midrash? This is what God does. He makes matches. And he made a match for Aaron and his sons. He found a match for them. And he said, this, this sacrifice, this is the sacrifice of Aaron. This is for Aaron. This is Aaron's territory. This is what renders Aaron into a priest. This is what transforms someone into a coin who can do service in the temple. And thus it makes sense that until a Kohen brings this sacrifice, they're not eligible to do any work because they haven't done what it takes to make them into a Kohen who can do worship and service in the temple. This is what renders someone into a Kohen capable of service on behalf of the Jewish nation. When God allocated responsibility, he gave jobs. This is the job that he gave to Aaron and his sons. But why? What's so special about this offering? Why is this the offering that most embodies the elevation of Aaron and his sons? These are some interesting questions about this very unique and elaborate meal offering let us suggest some approaches. I think the secret, the key to unlock what's happening over here is the curiosity that we mentioned earlier. There's some sort of equivalence between the high priest every day and the ordinary priest on day one. You know, if you think about it, the high priest has a different system of garments than the ordinary priest has. The ordinary priest has four garments, and the high priest has eight, and those paths never cross. The high priest never says, oh, today I'll just wear the four garments of the ordinary priest. And the ordinary priest never says, well, today I'll I'll try on the eight garment just for size, you know, to see how it fits. It's not how it works. These are the garments of the high priest and these are the garments of the ordinary priest. But somehow this sacrifice is the sacrifice of Aaron and his sons. There's something about the sacrifice where these two come together. And I think, and I want to suggest that there are lessons from both of these vantage points. There's something about an ordinary coin on day 1 there's something about that experience that mimics that rivals that mirrors the high priest and from the flip side there is something about the high priest on every day of his tenure it could be 50 years it could be 80 years every single day there's something about that that mimics an ordinary cohen On day one. And as we shall elaborate upon, the high priest, every day of his tenure, there should be something about that experience that evokes, that reminds us of day one. And what defines the high priest, what makes him special, is that. He could be 40, 50 years into doing the same thing every single day. And there's no erosion to the sense of novelty. Every day, day 14,212, it's still like day one. And there's something about the ordinary coming on day one. You're like a high priest for the day. I want to suggest that the superpower of a again, the spiritual leader of the people. The superpower is the sense of novelty. Every single day, when he goes to work on behalf of the Jewish people, and he dons the special eight vestments of the high priest, there's something about that that is reminiscent, that resembles day one. There is a feeling of excitement of awe, of anticipation for the high priest that doesn't diminish over time. And therefore, the high priest can bring an inauguration sacrifice, an inauguration offering every single day. And there's something to be said about the fact that an ordinary cohen on day one mimics the high priest. He gets the copy of the high priest for one day this promotion this elevation this change in a person's standing it provides this temporary boost that allows him to bring the offering of the high priest for one day he gets to ring the bell at the new york stock exchange he gets to throw out the first pitch to cut the ribbon and this day he is atop the spiritual world and the day of promotion it's a very special day indeed, because for this day, at least for this sacrifice, you are a high priest. Let's explain what we mean here. And I think when we understand the principle, the concept behind it, we can discover some very valuable and actionable Lessons for us. And that's always what we're trying to find here in Leviticus. Of course, we're trying to understand the sacrifices and what actually happened. We have to prepare ourselves, of course, please God, for the rebuilding of the temple. And these laws will go into immediate effect. But even now, and even in the diaspora, even far away from the reality, at least the way it appears, of a temple in action, there are always lessons in every word of the Torah. Let's begin with the ordinary coin. Our sages tell us that there are three people that have their sins expunged. We know of person sins, there's a blemish to their soul. And the Almighty created this incredible thing called repentance— that washes it away, that cleanses it, that removes the stain, the blemish, the flaw in the soul. It's an incredible idea. It's a creation that precedes the world, the Tama tells us. But there are three people, even apparently outside, absent repentance, that have all their sins expunged. This is found in many places in our literature. Rashi collects them in Genesis chapter 36, verse 3. He notes that uh, it's talking there about Asav and his wives. And one of his wives, she apparently has different names. Sometimes she's called Basmas and sometimes she's called Machlas. What is up about that? Why does she have different names? So Rashi tells us because her name is actually Basmas, But machlas, the word machal, means to be forgiven, to be atoned, to expiate. And when he married her, he actually got with his basmas, he got machlas, he had his sins forgiven. Continues Rashi, there are three people who have their sins forgiven. A convert, someone who converts to Judaism. They're now a new person, and all their sins that they did as a Gentile don't come along with them to their new identity. And somebody gets married, they were a single person in the past. Now they're married. Well, their sins don't come with them. And the third one is a person who receives a promotion and now ascends to a new role and a new position? Someone like that has their sins forgiven. Now, why would someone who either converts, gets married, or receives a promotion, why would they have all their sins forgiven? They haven't repented, apparently. It doesn't say that. That's not a precondition. This is the reason why, by the way, there is a ubiquitous custom for a bride and a groom to fast on their wedding day because there's something about this day that is reminiscent of Yom Kippur because just as on Yom Kippur your sins are forgiven, on your wedding day your sins are forgiven. But why? Why would someone simply by getting married or receiving a promotion to a higher position or by converting, why would they have all their sins forgiven? It seems like it's a cheat code. So the morale, in his comment to Rashi, he says something fascinating. All these three people have a change in identity. They're not the same person that existed yesterday with a new feature, with a new add-on. You have someone who converts. It's not like, well, yesterday my religious denomination was X and now it's Y. Oh, no. When someone who converts, the Talmud tells us, they're like a brand new baby. They dissociate themselves from their previous identity, and they now embrace, they adopt. They receive a new soul and a new identity. And just as you cannot pin the crime from Joe onto Bob, if Bob did a crime, why should Joe be responsible? You cannot pin a crime that someone did when they were a Gentile, Atop them when they're now a Jew because they're a different person. Oh, and when someone gets married, before they were married, they're only half a person. And now that they've married, they've fused together with their spouse. They're a new human. It's a new creation. And what happened before they were married, that's immaterial to this person now. It's a different person. Similarly, when someone ascends to greatness, when someone receives a promotion, they're now responsible for others. Previously, they were a single person. Now they are a communal person. And that too qualifies a person for being changed, not just in their behavior, in their standing, but in their identity. And therefore, they're not responsible for what they did in their previous selves. It's like a previous lifetime. You cannot be culpable for sins of a previous existence. So, what does this mean? This gives us a very interesting definition of a promotion. Someone ascends to greatness, someone receives a promotion. They were a private person, a singular person, and now they are a communal person, a public person. This is not just a new job. It's not just, oh, you need some new business cards, update your LinkedIn. You're an entirely different person on the day that you receive a promotion. And you're completely dissociated from the person that you were previously. And therefore, you cannot be judged for yesterday's sins because yesterday you were a different person. Someone else did them. I don't know who, I don't know who, but it wasn't this person. And you're not culpable for someone else's crimes. This is our sages' definition of a promotion. It's not just the change that happens to a person. It's a change in who that person is and what that person is. You're not just a new person with a new role, you're a completely different person. It's like you've been born again. It's a rebirth. You're a brand new human. We asked the question: You have an ordinary Cohen, and day one of their tenure as a Cohen doing work in the temple, they, they the first thing they do is they mimic the Kohen God. They replicate the offering of the Kohen Gadol. That's the very first thing that they do. And we ask the question, well, what business does an ordinary Kohen have to offer the specialized offering of the high priest? Here's the answer. On day one of your promotion, you're a brand new person and you've been cleansed, refined, purged, expunged of all of your flaws that you had previously. And thus, on this day, you're like a high priest. You're the absolute pinnacle, apex, apotheosis of humankind. It's appropriate for you to behave in a way fitting for someone of your standing. On the day that the coin first does work, first does service in the temple on behalf of others, all of his sins are cleansed. He's not the same person that he was yesterday. And this standing must be reflected in his service. You're like a koin gadol. You're like a high priest. And therefore, it is appropriate for you to offer a sacrifice like a high priest. I think that's one idea, perhaps to understand this Very unusual offering of Aaron and his sons. There's another point. You're an ordinary coin. You're not Aaron. You're not Ezra. You're not one of the real standouts. There are thousands, after all, of Kohanim. Thousands of priests. And you may feel, you know, it's my first day at the job here and what I got to do, I got to do these sacrifices and slaughter these animals and process all these sacrifices and there's lots of blood and, okay, I got to follow the rules, I've been well trained. But you may feel like you're an assembly line worker. You're just going through the motions, you know, following orders, practicing protocols. After all, you, you know, you're a Cohen. Your father was a Cohen your grandfather was a Kohen, your great-great-great-great-great-grandfather going back was Aaron, and you're just doing what a Kohen does. And perhaps a second idea for the ordinary Kohen bringing the sacrifice, the offering of the high priest is to banish, to dispel that misconception. On day one, the quote-unquote ordinary Kohen He's told, there's nothing run-of-the-mill, there's nothing pedestrian about your new role. And the first thing you do, perhaps, and this is what we're speculating, the first thing you do is that you mimic a high priest. And what business does an ordinary cohen have to, to behave to copy the high priest? This is how you start your job. To realize that your role is no less important. Just as the high priest is a singular post of astounding importance for the whole nation, in one facet, in one dimension, you're like that as well. In your role, you're the only person who can do it. We have a philosophy. We have an understanding that the Almighty creates a responsibility a job, a task, a mission for every person. And of course, some people are the high priest. Some people are the ordinary priest. Some people are not a priest at all. In your role, whatever role the Almighty allocates for you, you are the high priest of that role. You're the only one who can do it. If you were unnecessary, we like to say here on the Parsha podcast, you wouldn't exist. And therefore, it's important for a priest. But of course, this lesson is transportable to to all of us. You have to appreciate your standing. You have to realize that what you're doing, your role, it's not just grunt work, some ordinary commodity, fungible job that anyone can do paper-pushing, bean-counting, you're like the high priest. You're highly specialized. You are a one-of-one. Don't just think, well, I'm doing it, but really anyone else can do it. That is an attitude that's just not appropriate and not true. And therefore, perhaps, this is why it's quite fitting for the so-called ordinary coin on the very beginning of their time doing service in the temple, bring the offering of the high priest on day one, the day that you ascend to doing service in the temple, to realize really what you're doing. The Kohen Gadol has his job. Moshe had his job. Abraham had his job. David had his responsibility. Solomon, Rabbi Akiva, the Rambam, Rashi, the Chavetz Chaim, Everyone has their job. And you're responsible for yours. And you're the only one who could do yours. And don't think it's not so critical. Now, the high priest, the Kohen Gadol, brings this every single day. What the ordinary Kohen experiences on day one, the Kohen Gadol experiences every day. What? differentiates a high priest from an ordinary priest? For that matter, what differentiates an ordinary person from someone truly exceptional? I want to posit, I want to suggest that the real differentiator or maybe the primary differentiator between someone who is Ordinary, And someone who is exquisitely, exceptionally, extraordinarily special is the ability to achieve greatness, but also to maintain it day after day, year after year for a lifetime. The, the spiritual stamina to maintain the intensity, the focus, the excitement that you had on day one, that everyone has on day one. And to maintain that with no slippage, with no attrition, with no erosion, to have a steady, laser-like consistency of excitement and of joy and of novelty, that is what separates the high priest from the ordinary priest. Let's explain. The Talmud tells us, and I spent some time in my book, Upon a Ten-Stringed Harp, on this piece of Talmud, the Talmud tells us that the Yezeh Harah does two things every day: Mischadesh b'chol yom, he renews itself, or it renews itself every day. Misgaber b'chol yom, it overpowers a person every day. There are two ways that the Yezeh Harah gets a person to sin, gets a person to make mistakes. The evil inclination has two modi operandi. It renews itself every day and it overpowers every day. What this means is that a person sins for one of two reasons, either because they are seeking novelty and the Yetzirah says there's newness, there's novelty, there's excitement in sin. Or a person sins, a person blunders, a person errs. A person makes poor choices, not because they were seeking novelty or excitement, but because they were handcuffed, they were compelled, they were forced, they were overpowered. They were under the spell, under the dominion of the evil inclination, the Yitzhara, and they just followed orders. That's what the Talmud tells us in the book of Kiddushin. I believe it's found elsewhere as well. The Yetzirah renews every day. The Yetzirah overpowers every day. These are the two ways that the Yetzirah influences us. And my grandfather, blessed memory, used to say, well, if that's what the Yetzirah does, this also shows us what we need to do in response. Just as the Yetzirah, the evil inclination, overpowers and renews, the way you fight that. You fight fire with fire. The way you fight it is with the are Tov, the good inclination. It too should renew. It too should overpower. And this is a very, 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 very deep point. What does it mean that the Yetzir Tov, the good inclination, should use renewal... And should use overpowering to get us to do the right thing. When we do something good, it's also for one of two ways or one of two reasons. Either because we, we may not be so inspired to do good, but we feel compelled to do it because that's what we need to do. It's, it's right. We have to just do it. Or we can be Inspired. We could feel this is so exciting. What a sense of novelty. I'm so excited to be here. I can't wait to do the good thing, the right thing. When we do something good, just as when we do something bad, we could do it begrudgingly because we're overpowered, or we could do it out of a sense of, of zest and excitement because we are renewed. We have a feeling of novelty and excitement in that. Now to take this point even deeper, we all have areas of life where our hands are tied. We're overpowered. We're doing it because we're doing it. We have no choice. And we all have areas of life where we experience novelty. There's something exciting, brand new, all new. The only question really is, are these areas where we act because we're forced to act, so to speak, we're overpowered, and these areas where we act because we're excited to act, there's novelty. Are these the domain of the good or the bad inclination? Our tell tells us that our focus, this is found many, many places, our focus should be that every single time we do a mitzvah, it should be as if that same day we were at Sinai, and we were told for the very, very, very first time to do that mitzvah. Can you imagine what what that would be? At Sinai, you experience miracles and incredible prophecy, and God says, I want you to wear tefillin. I want you to keep the Shabbos. I want you to study Torah. I want you to put a mezuzah on your door. People will be clamoring to fulfill it. What an unbelievable thing. You could do the will of the Almighty. And you know, if we've been fortunate enough to do mitzvahs in our life, probably the first time we did any mitzvah, was very exciting. But what happens? The mitzvah leaves the domain of newness and if we're lucky, it remains in the area of overpowering. I haven't missed wearing my tefillin. Now what? Well, now I'm 36 years old. What? In uh 23 years? And of course, day one, you're really excited. I'm going to put on my tefillin for the first time. You know, day 5,000, it's less exciting. But you put it on nonetheless. And that's a good thing. Because that means that the Yetzir Tov, the good inclination, he has you handcuffed, you're in a corner, and you have to listen. That's a good thing. But the ideal is that every single day, every single mitzvah, it's like the very first time that you've done it. As if today you were commanded by God to do that mitzvah. In many, many, many places, and many years ago, we did a podcast called The Novelty Principle. We spoke about all the places in the Torah where it says that. But in many places, they just tell us every single day, make believe, or you should view yourself every single day like today you had Sinai. Today, the Almighty came into a covenant with you. Today, you received this law. It shouldn't be some sort of antiquated, old, stale mitzvah. No. Every day. It's new. Newness. Novelty. The excitement, the freshness of a mitzvah. In matters of holiness, this is the mark of Aaron. And this is what separates, we want to speculate, Aaron from the other priests. The other priests, they brought this inauguration offering on day one. On day two, well, it's not day one anymore. I've been here before. I know my way around. Aaron on day two and day 5,000, he maintained that sense of novelty. For Aaron, the good inclination was renewing all the time, every day. What is news? Is it the domain of the Eitzah Sahara or the Eitzah Tov? What makes Aaron stand out, head and shoulders above his peers is that he is able to do the same service every single day in the temple. Every single day he experiences it in the precise way that the ordinary Kohen feels and relates to it on day one. Now, I want to speculate. Perhaps this is why the Kohen Gadol divides it half in the morning and half in the afternoon. You know, it's interesting. It's identical sacrifices with one small difference. The ordinary priest, on the inauguration of their tenure, they bring it all in the morning. The high priest, half in the morning, half in the afternoon. Perhaps we can speculate. What defines the high priest, the greatest Jew in the nation, is that the sense of novelty does not erode over the course of the day. From morning, throughout the whole day, To the afternoon, Aaron does not lose his recognition and his appreciation of what he's doing. The ordinary Kohen, you got to do it all in the morning because who knows, by afternoon, maybe the sense of novelty may wear down. Aaron is every day, his relationship with this mitzvah, every single day, it's the way an ordinary Kohen is on day one in the very beginning of the day. In the morning, by late afternoon, the ordinary cohen, you're ready in the groove, you're getting used to it, you're accustomed enough for it to be outside of the realm of novelty. Again, this whole subject is introduced by telling us this is the offering of Aaron and his sons. What a way to introduce a sacrifice. This is Aaron. If you want to emulate Aaron, this is what you need to focus on. With Aaron, nothing gets old, nothing gets boring, nothing gets dated. It's always new, it's always fresh, it's always novel. And this is Aaron. And I want to maybe perhaps add some more speculation if possible. We know that Aaron is someone who is defined as he who loves humanity, who loves peace, who pursues peace, loves humanity, and brings them close to Torah. Aaron epitomizes someone who can bring others close to Torah. How do you bring others close to Torah? Only if you have this Aaron quality, where every mitzah, every spiritual opportunity, it's exciting, it's pulsating with energy, it's coursing with excitement and, and pizzazz every single day, as if it was the first time that they did it. So I think we have this incredible offering, this incredible sacrifice. It's the inauguration offering. It's the daily offering, half the morning, half the afternoon, of the Kohen Gadol. And most of us are completely ineligible to ever offer it. Of course, we don't have a temple. And most of us are non-Kohanim. But we can and should Glean some valuable lessons from it nonetheless. And I think we have three grand takeaways. Number one, the power of promotion. Anyone who ascends to greatness, you are a new person and realize that you're a new person and realize that you can reinvent yourself. Your sins are forgiven. You have new standing. We're always looking for ways to improve, to start from scratch, to get a clean slate. Anyone who was ever elevated to a new position, this is gold, number one. Number two, the importance of all roles. In your specific corner of life, you are the high priest. You know, the Almighty divided up the world's responsibilities into billions of parts. Really, it was all coalesced in Adam. Adam was responsible for all of humanity's mission. After Adam made the choice that he made, well, now Adam's been divided up. This is Adam, A-D-A-M, by the way. We're not talking about the division of the Adam. That's something else. Adam, Adam and Eve, they are divided up and their mission is now divided up as well. But in your mission, in your job, in your task, in what the Almighty gives you to do, you're the king. You're the coin gunner, You're the dictator. You're the czar. You're the president. You're the CEO of your job. You're in charge. You're the chief. Don't forget that. And finally, we learn from this, the battle, the central battle is the battle, or perhaps one of the central battles, maybe the primary central dilemma of our life, the conflict of our life, is the battle for novelty. What is news? That is the question. For Aaron and all the other titans of our history, the answer is the domain of the Yetzir Tov. Okay, so we like to end off the podcast, as you know, with a question. And We'll do even better. You know, next week it's going to be Pesach, so we're going to have a week off. No Parsha podcast next week because we don't have a Parsha next week. We have, of course, Passover. So we'll give you something extra. Now, one question, three questions, and this relates to the Thanksgiving sacrifice, the carbon toda. This is a type of shlamim offering. Shlamim—it's called a shlamim offering because everyone gets a piece of the action: the kawain, the owner, the owner's friends, the altar, of course. And when someone wants to bring a Thanksgiving offering we're told there are four reasons why they would bring a thanksgiving offering. They want to give thanks to the Almighty. Well, why would you want to give thanks to the Almighty? So, the truth is, every time you breathe, you're supposed to give thanks to the Almighty. But the offering, the sacrifice, is brought on four distinct occasions. Someone who survives a life threat. They went. Through the sea and they survived. They went across the Sahara desert and survived. They were deathly ill, terminally ill, and they underwent a recovery. They were imprisoned and now they have been released. Under these four circumstances, these miracles that happen to a person, they must thank the Almighty. Now, if you study this particular sacrifice, you'll notice several anomalies about the thanksgiving sacrifice. For one, the duration of time that a person is allowed to eat it. Typically, if an Israelite is able to eat a sacrifice, it's known as kachim, kalim, lower levels of holy, and they're allowed two days and a night to eat it. But with respect to this form of a sacrifice that an Israelite is allowed to eat, all they have is one day and one night. So the time allotted to eat it is much shorter than ordinary sacrifices of this ilk. Why is that? Number two, there is a staggering amount of bread that is brought together with a the sacrifice. There are four different types of bread. You have bread that was blanched, and you make that into 10 different loaves. And then you have a different type of bread where the flour was mixed with oil and baked, and 10 of those. And then you have a third type of bread, and that is when the oil is added afterwards, and 10 of those. And then you have 10 more loaves of bread that is chametz, that is matzah, those Other three groups of 10, it's called bread, but it must, in fact, be unleavened. So a person brings a staggering amount of bread to the temple with their thanksgiving offering. If you're counting, it's 40 loaves. That's a lot of carbs. Now, one of each of these four types of breads, the three matzah breads, and the one category of non-matzah bread of chametz bread one of each was given to the kohen so you're left with 36 loaves of bread and you have to eat it in one day and one night why is there so much bread question number 2 question number 3 is that part of the bread is chametz this is a rarity in the temple There's only two instances where chametz is brought into the temple. The two loaves brought on Shavuos and ten of the breads that accompany the person who brings a thanksgiving offering. We have three very unusual characteristics of this thanksgiving offering. I'm not going to give you an answer. It's a question to enjoy and savor as we prepare for our matzah, please God, next week. But I will tell you, if you want to find the answer, there is a Sephorno commentary where he answers in a beautiful way, in wonderful fashion. He answers all three of these questions and gives us a beautiful idea and a beautiful lesson. I encourage you to find it and to see what he has to say. It's so wonderful to be back in the Pirate podcast studios here in the Torch Center in Eastern Texas. I know I went a little over time. Typically, we try to do this a little shorter. I guess I am a little rusty, but I thank you for listening. This was a joy and a pleasure and a privilege. Hope y'all have an incredible Pesach, a happy Pesach, a kosher Pesach, a chametz-free Pesach, and uplifting, inspiring, transcendental Pesach, but of course, Shabbos beforehand, Have an incredible Shabbos. Incredible rest of your week. I'm forgetting exactly what I'm supposed to say. I know there's a form formula that's not written down. Have a wonderful day. Spectacular. Terrific. Sensational. Awesome. Shabbos are coming. And please, God, we will talk again. Not next week. But the following week, we will have the Shemini podcasts from previous years up already next week. But please, God, the following week, we will once again get together. If the Almighty helps us, and we are blessed by him. We'll get together again to have another Parsha podcast. Thank you. Have a wonderful day. Fantastic Shabbos. Terrific. Pesach. And as always, my email address is rabbiwolby at gmail.com. And I'm refreshing my inbox because I want to see an email from you. Send me an email, rabbiwolby at gmail.com.